when I was in college, uh, there was a bagel shop in my university town. And it was kind of the hangout spot. It was where everybody, you know, went to hang out on a Saturday morning or maybe before class or maybe you would study there. It was that kind of place. It was the place to be. The food was good. The coffee was good. And listen, I loved this place. I loved it. So many great memories there. And for the four years that I was in school, um, and for really even several years after that, I mean, I would think of this bagel shop and my mouth would just water. And anytime my wife, Rebecca, and I, we would return to our university town for like an alumni weekend or for like a game or something, we would always make a point to make a stop at this bagel shop for a meal because we just craved those bagels. And we just loved those bagels. But then I moved to Brooklyn six years ago. And after a couple of years, we returned to our, after a couple of years of living in Brooklyn and eating at Steve's and Bagel Schmagel and Bagel Boy and having bagels all the time, um, we, we went back to our college town to go see some friends, and we were so excited to go back to this bagel shop. And I went to the counter, I ordered my order, I got my bagel, I went to my table, I was so excited to show my kids this place, and then I took a bite of this bagel, and my kids took a bite of theirs, and they kind of pushed it to the middle of the table. And I realized something devastating. That bagel was pretty average. After years of having real bagels in Brooklyn, those thin, chewy, whatever you want to call them, but they're not bagels, they did not satisfy any longer. And listen, you never want to be the pretentious New Yorker. I don't. I don't want to be that, that guy, you know, but there was a part of me in this restaurant where I just wanted to stand up and tell everyone, you are deceived. Like, you think that those bagels on your plate are delicious, but you have no idea what you're missing out on. I don't know if it's the water, I don't know if it's the yeast or whatever, but the bagels in New York are way better than whatever it is that is on our plates right now. You have no idea what you're missing out on. Just go to Brooklyn. No disrespect to my local college bagel shop, but I've tasted something greater, and those bagels, they, they, don't, they don't appeal to me any longer. I want some Brooklyn bagels. We've been studying the Gospel of John for several weeks now, and this week we come to a famous statement where Jesus claims, I am the bread of life. And he tells a crowd of people, he says, look guys, the bread that you think satisfies, you have no idea what's available to you, Jesus says. You think that bread that you have satisfies, but you have no idea what I'm offering to you. And so here's the scene. Jesus was surrounded by a very large crowd of people who had come to hear him teach. We saw this last week. There were at least 5,000 men coming, gathering to see him teach, maybe see a miracle. Uh, they want to see Jesus do something spectacular. And they all became hungry. And instead of sending the people away, what does Jesus do? He took a child's small basket of bread, five loaves of barley, and he fed 5,000 people with just five loaves of bread, and they ate their fill. And the text says... In John chapter 6, it says, When the people saw the sign that Jesus had done, they said, This is indeed, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. And I love what the very next verse says. It says, Perceiving then, Jesus, perceiving then what they were, that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew to the mountain by himself. So this is the first century, right? And these are Jewish peasants, mostly. They don't have bodegas on the corner. 
And so when someone makes bread out of almost nothing, these poor people start wondering, hey, I wonder if this miracle gift that this man Jesus has, I wonder if it can scale. You know, if, if he could do this every day, we would never, we would never be hungry again. And so, I mean, it starts going, light bulbs start going off in their brain and they say, we've got to get this. He could be useful. We would never starve again if we had Jesus with us. And they also were considering, remember, these are first century Jewish citizens, but they were living under the authority of the Roman government. So they were, this was an oppressed people. And they had, there, were, there were stories, there, were, there was prophecies about a Messiah who would come and rescue them from their oppressors. And so they thought, if this guy can do what he just did with bread and fish and can feed us, maybe his power and authority can scale to the point where he can do something about our oppressors. Let's make him king and let's take out our, our oppressors. They're thinking, I mean, they, they're, all the possibilities of what Jesus could mean for them. And so they run after Jesus. And they're going to take him and they want to make him their king. They, they saw how useful Jesus could be. And of course, Jesus tries to get away. He's like juking them. And he's like, I'm going to go hide in the mountains. But they find him. And they, they start asking for more signs. Do it again, Jesus. Do it again. And here's our text for today. This is what Jesus responds to them in John chapter 6, verse 26. It says, Jesus answered them. Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Don't work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. And they said to him, well, what must we do, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Now look at verse 29. It says, Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you may believe in him who he has sent. Jesus is talking about himself. So they said to him, well, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it wasn't Moses who gave you the bread from heaven. But it was my Father that who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, Okay, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And look down at verse 47. Jesus again says, truly, truly. And just if you're ever studying your Bible, when Jesus drops a truly, truly, that's when, you, that's when you pay attention. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. So Jesus tells this crowd, he says, you guys are looking for more loaves of bread. You guys are talking, talking about Moses giving you your ancestors manna in the wilderness. And you're talking about how great that was. I'm here to tell you that they ate bread and they still died. 
And I'm here to tell you that you can eat all, I can multiply as many loaves of bread as you want and you eat those and you'll still die. But I'm here to tell you that if you believe in me, Jesus says, you will not die. I am the bread of life. And Jesus, what he does is he takes something tangible that's on everyone's mind after the miracle. Like they're all thinking of bread. Did you see that? It was about, and now it's all of us fed. They're still, they probably still had the breadcrumbs in their beards. Like this, that's all they're thinking about right now. And Jesus uses what they're thinking of and he turns it on itself and he uses it as a metaphor to explain who he is and the type of life he offers. He is the bread and he offers eternal life. And he shows them, look, you guys, you think you want more miracle bread, but I am telling you what you really want is the bread of life, which is me. Because if you come to me, you'll never hunger again. And I think this lesson can apply to our lives as well. Because all of us, we live in a more um, advanced society. None of us, I hope, are struggling to find bread today. We know where to find bread. Bread is not, in, it's not scarce. But we are all, all of us, Whoever you are watching online or in this room, you are seeking something. You crave something in your life that you believe can give you satisfaction. And you think, if I could just have that, man, I would be so content. I would never, I would never ask for anything else if I could just have this. But Jesus says, you'll eat that bread and you'll be hungry again the next day. But I'm offering you something greater. I'm offering you the bread of life. Come to me and you'll never be hungry again. And so I don't really have points this afternoon in the sermon, but I'm just going to tell you this. There is a life that we seek, and then there's the life that Jesus offers. So the crowd, they watch Jesus perform this amazing miracle, and their takeaway is, we want some more bread. You know, you see, he, they see Jesus do this incredible thing, and their thought is, oh, he can give us more bread. Let's go get some more bread. But the miracle was never the point. That's why John, in the Gospel of John, doesn't call them miracles. He calls them signs. The miracle was not meant to point to himself. It was a sign that pointed to something greater. Jesus multiplying loaves was meant to point to who he is, which is the bread of life. And they seek after Jesus, and they say, Jesus, give us some bread. In other words, they say, Jesus, help us survive. And Jesus says, you guys don't get it. I came to teach you how to thrive in all of life. And Jesus says, look, you call me a king and a prophet, and you're right, I am a king and I am a prophet, but I've got a different message and a different kind of kingdom in mind than what you're thinking. I didn't come to merely solve your political problems, Jesus says to them. I came to fix the human heart. I came to heal the things that transcend any human leader or government or specific time in history. The message I bring and the kingdom I bring is not just for you and your children, but it's for generation after generation after generation and all times and all places. You see, they came to Jesus looking for someone who might be able to fix their circumstances, but Jesus was offering to fix their hearts. They were, they were seeking literal bread, but bread is actually a metaphor, Jesus says. He says, you're seeking me. You see, the metaphor is that whatever we are seeking to be satisfied, whatever it is that you're seeking for in life to find contentment, that is the bread that you think, if I can just get a basket full of that, I'll be fine and I'll be content. And we are told in this life, just, I mean, drive down 4th Avenue and look at the billboards. You know, go to Times Square or wherever and just see the advertisements 
and on the subway, all the advertisements on the train, we are told, we are told this lie that all sorts of things in life can satisfy us. And it feels that these days that that's mostly all that advertising is. My brother's in advertising, so I, don't, I try not to be too cynical about advertising. But essentially, I mean, you watch an advertisement on television, and it's like, it's not, it doesn't seem like they're trying to sell you on the features of a product, are they? They're not like, well, here are the, all the great features of this thing and this thing. No, it's not that. They're trying rather to show you how this product can elevate your life into another status. You'll feel more confident. You'll feel more satisfied. Your longings will be fulfilled in some way or your identity will be elevated some way. Oh, man, you, you, like, that's a lot to ask of a razor blade, isn't it? That's a lot to ask of face wash. And maybe I'm growing cynical, but I'm beginning to agree with what I heard one teacher say who said everything that is sold to you in our culture of what will give you life is almost all a lie. We're told, I mean, just think about it. We're told that beauty and health will satisfy us. Every advertisement you see, it's, it's some beautiful person. And we think, oh, man, if I just had that suitcase, I would look like that, you know, that person. And listen, I'm sure there are perks to being attractive in our society. And there, but there, and there are certainly benefits to being healthy too, right? Um, but all those things are fleeting and they're temporary. I mean, I'm at the age now where I see celebrities on TV that I used to like, you know, have a crush on, and I'm like, okay, that's what they look like now. Like time, you know, time does that to people, right? Beauty is fleeting. And so if we put all our, you know, if, if we put all our hope and our beauty and our looks and our attractiveness, then it's fleeting. Many of you, I mean, same with fitness and health. Many of you know I'm, a, I'm an avid runner, and I've had some success in my running career. Um, and over t- there are times in my life where I've built a lot of my identity on being a fast runner. That's kind of, I'm, I'm just very, pr- that's something I've always been proud of. And I try to, like, I, that, that's a thing I build my identity around. But listen, I turned 36 this year. And I'm beginning to recognize that fitness doesn't last forever, does it? There's a guy named Father Time, and he's undefeated. You know, I used to show up to races, and I would look around and be like, which one of these losers? I'm going to beat all these losers. Now I'm like, you know what? You got personal goals, Will. You know, like you run your race, man. Like things change as you get older. I'm beginning to realize that fitness and health doesn't last forever. So I can't put my hope in that, can I? We're told that success or recognition will satisfy. I keep thinking of that interview with Tom Brady that I shared with you guys a couple of weeks ago. Tom Brady, married to a supermodel, worth, you know, $600 million or whatever. He says, why do I have all these Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey, man, this is what it is. I reached my goal, my dream, my life. But me, I just think, God, it's got to be more than this. I mean, this isn't. This can't be all that it's cracked up to be. Tom Brady. We're told that security and wealth will satisfy us. You know, there are actually studies that say that wealth is, in fact, a determining factor of our sense of happiness. There are studies that say that, but only up to a certain point. Studies say that once the $60,000 threshold is hit, then there is no noticeable amount of happiness gains from any bit of income you earn after $60,000. And I think essentially what the study says is, you know, uh, beyond having your need, basic needs met, 
and having a little bit of security, studies suggest that there's no additional contentment to be found in the next 50,000 or the next 100,000 or the next million or whatever. Some studies even suggest that happiness diminishes after a certain amount of money. Listen, we're from Brooklyn. Biggie tried to tell us, didn't he? No money, no problems, right? Listen, I, I, have a, uh, I have a very, very wealthy friend who is my age, and uh, he has just made more money uh, in his short life than I could ever comprehend. I mean, it's, he's made a lot of money. And I, we, I kind of had a frank conversation with him one time, and he said, Will, um, when, I, when I got out of college, he said, I was pretty motivated. I wanted to make a lot of money. And he said, in my mind, there was an amount of money that I put in my mind that I said, I want to make this by a certain age, and I want to retire with this amount of money, and if I do that, I'll be happy. And he looked at me and he said, Will, by the time I had turned 30, I had blown that number out of the water. He said, and I've learned that since then, if I don't pay attention to my heart, the more money I make, the more I will actually want and the less content I'll actually become. We think success and wealth will give us that satisfaction we crave, but all the data says that the more you get, the more you want and the less satisfied you get. We crave power and we crave authority. You think about it, if you're a low-level employee at work, you're like, man, if I could just be the boss, if I could just get up to the, you know, the top, like it's so miserable working down at the bottom, and I get that. But then you ask the boss of your company, and they're going to go, I'm losing my mind. I'm so stressed out. I've got all these employees. I've got... Listen, there's no promotion. There's no desk that you can sit in that's going to calm the emptiness in your heart. I can promise you that. We're told that politics will satisfy us. Listen, as the United States becomes more secular, you can watch this, politics is essentially becoming the de facto religion of our country. Because think about it. It used to be we looked to religion for morality. Now where do we look? We look to our party platforms to, to figure out what our moral stand on a particular issue is. We look to party platforms for our morality. We look to politics to locate the source of evil in the world. What's wrong with this world? It's them. It's that team. It's that party. You see, when we've made our morality and we've made evil tied up within our politics, in essence, we've made politics a religion. And we convince ourselves that if policies were just perfect, we would all be content, there would be world peace, it would be great, but it's just not true. We're chasing after wind. You see, there is a life that we are all after. We all want a life of health, beauty, success, recognition, wealth, security, pleasure. We want policies that align with our ideals. We want power and authority. And listen to me, none of those are bad desires. None of those are necessarily terrible desires. Christianity is not against desire. That's Buddhism. Buddhism is, it says desire is bad. Christianity says desire is good, but only when it's placed under the lordship of Jesus. But rightly understood and properly held, all of these things are good things, but here's what Jesus is saying. You're not going to find life in them. Like politics can't give your life ultimate meaning and satisfaction. Your looks and your attractiveness and your wealth and pleasure cannot give your life ultimate satisfaction and ultimate meaning. And here's where the real problem lies for many of us. We don't believe that. And what we often do when we come to Jesus or when we pray to God, what we're actually doing is, God, I need you to give me the things that I want. 
Many people, that's, that's why we approach, that's, that sometimes that is the source of our prayers. I'm desperate because I don't have the things that I want. God, would you give me those things so that I can be content? And we come to Jesus and we pray, God, give us these things. And when perhaps we don't get all these things exactly the way that we prescribed and hoped for, what happens is we become bitter and angry for not giving us things he never promised to give us. We're like, God, I thought you will give it, you would came to give us life. If I had these things, I would have life. But Jesus is saying to you, look, all that stuff is good, but those are barley loaves. I'm offering you the bread of life. And we often, what we want is we want God to just add things to our life. But Jesus is saying, I came to give you the fullness of life so that whatever you have in this life, you, you will be satisfied with it because it is what I have given you. It's like, listen, it's like me eating bagels at the bagel shop in college, not realizing that New York bagels were available to me. I'd never been to New York when I was in college. And so I'm eating these bagels from this local college bagel shop, and I'm going, this is as good as it gets. But I had no idea that there were big, fat, round, cinnamon raisin bagels with walnut raisin cream cheese that I could get from Bagel Boy or Bagel Schmagel or whatever. I didn't know it was available to me. And this is what many of us do. We're playing around in our life with all these small things, not realizing the life that God has available for us. C.S. Lewis once said, you know, we are half-hearted creatures. We fool around with drink and sex and ambition when in reality, infinite joy is offered to us. We're like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a vacation at the sea. C.S. Lewis says, we are far too easily pleased. And Jesus says to these people seeking bread, he says, you guys, you want bread? Please, you are far too easily pleased. I came to offer you abundant life. Jesus says in verse 27, he says, do not work and strive after the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And you say, okay, Jesus says these things don't satisfy. He says he is the bread of life. Jesus says he himself is the bread of life. God is offering me a relationship with Jesus, and that's supposed to give me life. And you're like, that sounds abstract. Like, how does, that, how does a life with God fulfill my longings? How does it, like, I, don't, I can't see God, I can't touch Him. Like, how, do, how does this work? How does it really affect me? Here's the best way that I can explain it to you that you might understand. My wife and I just celebrated our 12-year wedding anniversary. Yeah. Um, and I, listen, I just love my wife so much. Um, it's her birthday this week. So in the chat, tell Rebecca, happy birthday. Rebecca, I love you. Um, and you know, it's her birthday this week. And I just absolutely adore my wife. I think she's awesome. And anybody who's in a healthy marriage, you know, look, there are benefits to being married. Like there are some benefits. There's tax benefits, filing jointly. That's a good thing. There's the benefit of dual income. Like I like that I married someone that earns additional income, like it, dual income is a good thing. There's the benefit of intimacy. My wife, her parents give good Christmas gifts. That's a benefit. Like I always, Nana and Papa are going to give me a good Christmas gift come Christmas time. My wife gave me three beautiful children. My wife makes really good coffee in the morning. 
I pretend to, I, every time I make coffee, I make it too strong or too light so that it, she's like, you just don't make coffee. So she makes it every morning. It's great. So she makes coffee every morning. It's great. She's a good cook. She made an excellent lunch today. Sometimes my wife cleans up after me. Sometimes she does my laundry. Like there are benefits to being married to a good woman. But when I think about how much I love my wife, when I sat down with my wife for dinner on our 12th anniversary, I didn't look at her and say, honey, I love you so much because you earn a little bit extra and it helps our finances. Or honey, I I love that we get to file jointly on taxes come tax time. I, I love that you make my coffee in the morning. I didn't say any of that. Why? Because the blessing of marriage is not actually the benefits that my wife gives me. The blessing of marriage is her. Like the blessing of my marriage is not all the stuff that I get. It is Rebecca. That's what I love about my wife is her presence, that she's with me and that I get to know her, and that I get to spend my life with her. And many of us need to recognize that knowing God is like this. If you've never had a life with God and you're wondering what what following Jesus would look like, ask around to the people in this church that have had a life with God. We can tell you that the joy of knowing God and having a relationship with Jesus is that you know God. And if you've never experienced that, that may sound crazy to you, but I'm telling you, if you know God, then you know that His presence in your life is really all you need for everlasting joy and peace. And many of us need to recognize that this is the life that Jesus offers. But the crowds in our story today, that's not what they wanted. They just wanted bread. And you're like, there's so much more for you. And chapter 6 ends this way in verse 60. It says, Therefore, when many of Jesus' disciples heard this, they said, Huh, this teaching is hard. Who can accept it? And verse 66 says that from that moment, many of his disciples turned back and no longer accompanied him. So today is Palm Sunday. It's the beginning of Holy Week. And on Palm Sunday, we reflect on Jesus coming into Jerusalem the week before He's crucified on Passover. And the similarities between John chapter 6 that we just read and Palm Sunday are striking. In John 6, it was Passover. On Palm Sunday, Jesus was entering Jerusalem for Passover. In John 6, Jesus had just performed the miracle of feeding 5,000 people. On Palm Sunday, Jesus had just performed the miracle of raising Lazarus from the dead. In John 6, the crowds were chanting, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. On Palm Sunday, they shouted, Hosanna in the highest, save us. In John chapter 6, they were looking for Jesus to provide bread. But Jesus was offering spiritual bread. On Palm Sunday, the people were looking for a political savior, but Jesus was offering a greater salvation than just politics. In John 6, Jesus withdrew because he knew that he wasn't the prophet that the people hoped for. And he knew that when he taught them those hard things that they would abandon him. On Palm Sunday, Jesus didn't withdraw, but he wept. Because he knew he wasn't the Savior his people expected. And he knew that they would walk away. In John 6, when the people realized that Jesus wasn't making more loaves of bread, they abandoned him. During Holy Week, when the people realized that Jesus hadn't come to Jerusalem to overthrow Rome, that He wasn't going to be a political Savior, 
they shouted, crucify him. And as we enter into Holy Week, I want you to ask yourself, what do you want from God? What do I want from God? Ask yourself this question. Do you simply want God to give you the things that you think you really need? If so, you're not really worshiping God. You're worshiping those things and you're seeking God to give you the things you really worship. This Holy Week, I want you to ask, what is it that you want from God? Do you want Him to give you whatever bread it is that you think will satisfy you? Or do you want Him? Do you want His presence and His approval? You see, I began this story talking about bagels. I was so content as a young man eating thin, chewy bagels because I had no idea what was available to me. But when I finally experienced the fullness of what a bagel could be, listen, I'm no longer content with bad bagels. I'm not going to put up with it. I live in Brooklyn. You know, (laughs) we're not doing that bad bagel stuff. Listen, don't go through life content with breadcrumbs and with bread that never satisfies, when God is offering you something far greater. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Not blessed are those who hunger and thirst after wealth and fame and success and money and career and clothes and fashion and whatever. It doesn't say they will be satisfied. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. There is so much more available to you in this life than what you're seeking. Jesus is the bread of life. I am the bread of life, he says. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Let me pray for you, Crossroads. God, we confess, we believe that you are the bread of life. God, give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to believe that that is indeed true. And God, wherever we're seeking and chasing and nibbling after things that we think will give us fullness of joy, God, would you redirect our hearts and minds to see that you are where life is found, that there is joy in knowing you. And while there are plenty of benefits that come along with following you, The purpose of following you is to get more of you. And so God, would you give us eyes to see and hearts to believe that you are indeed the bread of life. And it's in your name we pray, amen.